Welcome to Fantasy Books and How to Read Them. The fantasy book review podcast by this couple who's read more than a couple of fantastic books. We're your hosts, Sam. And Anna. And let's see what we're reading this week. Welcome back, fantastic listeners. This is Fantastic Books and How to Read Them, and today we are covering The Name of the Wind, chapters 79 through 83, which covers the Dracus attack. Oh, yes, finally. So excited to be talking about this set of yes, chapters. Yes, this like, culmination of action I'm very excited for. Um, I had a couple of quick announcements before we get into it. Um, the first being that we are toying with the idea of developing merch in 2021, so we'll keep you updated on that. But in an ideal world, we'll have stickers and t-shirts and all sorts of fun things. Mugs, um, too. Yeah, definitely mugs, but it more depends on our artistic abilities and how <laughs> how well we can transform our ideas into actual uh, merchandise. And then my second announcement is that we got a couple weeks ago our Spotify 2020 like yearly wrap report of how well we did. Um, obviously, we haven't even been a podcast for a full year. We started in March of 2020. Um, but I just wanted to say thank you to everyone for listening because we were in 47 different countries. So thank you to all our listeners in the United States, Germany, and Israel. Those are our top three countries, <laughs> followed by... Canada, India, Ireland, Netherlands, South Africa, Peru, Sweden, UK, Denmark, Italy, Mexico, New Zealand, Norway, Iceland, Spain, Hungary, Australia, Philippines, Ghana, Belgium, Chile, Malta, Brazil, Switzerland, Malaysia, Austria, France, Japan, Finland, Sudan, Czech Republic, Thailand, Portugal, Ecuador, Poland, Andorra, Uruguay, Vietnam, Iran, Argentina, Panama, Taiwan, Turkey, Latvia, Guatemala, Estonia, Singapore, Morocco, Indonesia, Slovakia, Paraguay, Slovenia, Cyprus, and Costa Rica. That's it? <laughs> I know, I really wanted to collect 50 countries in our first year, but we only hit 47, so... Still time, we have till March. Yes, we do have till March. But that was it for my announcements, I just wanted to say thank you to everyone for listening, because that was a really cool and exciting number to see within our first year. Also, big thank you to everyone, because we as a podcast officially hit over 2,000 downloads. Oh my god, I forgot. This is our other big announcement. Yeah, it's a big deal. Yeah, so last episode we were very close to the 2,000 download mark, and uh, between that episode and this episode we're now at almost 2,200, so whoever's out there listening, thank you so much. It's really awesome to see these numbers go up. Um, I never expected this many people to listen. I'm glad that there are lots of fantasy book lovers out there who are, you know, willing to hang out with us every couple of weeks and listen to us talk about our favorite books. But I think without further ado, let's actually talk about one of our favorite books. Yes, so let's jump right on in. Yes, chapter 79, Sweet Talk. This chapter is where Kvothe is deciding how much dinner resin to give to the Dracus. Yeah. But so I think it's kind of like sweet talk about like the sweet Denna resin is the name, but it's also he has this interaction with Denna because she's still under the effects of the Denna resin. Yeah, they're all like cuddled up. So it's like pillow talk, like sweet talk as they're like laying there together. And he's also kind of having this all internal monologue of like how much dinner to use on the Dracus. So there's like a double meaning. Yeah, like again, they're sweetly talking, but also talking about the sweet Denna resin. Yeah. Um, I love, though, how he goes through this mental math to guess how much Denner resin to provide to kill the Dracus, because this is their current plan. They're going to poison the Dracus with Denner resin. So he tries to guess how much Denner swallowed, and then he triples the dose and then triples it again to determine that, like, that might be enough for the Dracus. But he gets to, like, the size of a grape, and then he guesses... Oh, then he goes by weight and guesses that, like, he needs a hundred times the dose that Denna got. So he basically makes like... Ten grapes, puts that together, and then makes nine more of that ball shape and puts those together, which is actually really smart. I I think it's funny, though, because he is doing his math, but I think he's also trying to not use up the Denna resin. Like, he, he knows how much it's worth, and it, yeah. he really wants to, like, cash in on it later. So he's like, well, I'll just calculate how much we need, whereas... If it were a useless, like, monetarily useless poison, it would just be like, give it all of it. Yeah. Like, give it everything. So he he drops it in the bucket, and Dana looks at it, and she's like, I don't, I don't think that's enough. Oh, absolutely not. And he's, like, really kind of being a little bit stingy with 
the dinner resin. So they end up with 21 balls of dinner resin that he makes. And he says 21 is a good number because it's three sevens. So here again, we have the number seven coming up. It's always in the book. And then he doubles it again. So they get to 42 because he, he starts thinking about like what's left and how much money he would have by selling the dinner resin. But then he also starts thinking about like how much destruction this Dracus will cause if they don't give it the correct dosage. So right, like, and then right. I brought up he already has a bit of a tolerance for it. Oh yeah, that's true too. They really don't want like the guilt of the Dracus on their hands if it starts destroying the town. Mm. So they basically what I understand their plan to be is they kind of have a bucket of the dinner resin strung up on a rope and then it's they're gonna go up onto the greystone. Yeah. And then they'll be able to move the dinner resin with the rope in case the Dracus like smashes it, but they're hoping they'll to be able to like lift it up so that it just scoops it right in its mouth. Yeah, they're basically going to light a big bonfire on top of the hill again, attract the Dracus, and then yeah, feed on the poison. Thankfully, it ends up working because it's a pretty simple plan. Yeah. But um, Kavot's definitely worried about Denna. He gives her some food, but he also has to like check her over. So he's like listens to her heartbeat, and of course he's like, oh, my head is on her chest, like, ooh. So scandalous. <laughs> I know. I love that too, because then he like pictures Master Arwal and he's like... Keep it together. Yeah. I like disapproving. Yeah, yeah. So this is at this point, Dennis kind of just like sleepy. I think it's wearing off for the most part. I think after you come down from your dinner resin high, you just kind of sleep very, very deeply. Yeah. Um, and she's a little bit cold. So that's the one thing Kvothe is worried about, because they're sitting next to this huge bonfire and she's chilly. So he puts a blanket on her. And starts, like, cuddling up to her to try to keep her warm. And this is where the sweet talk comes in. <laughs> and it's where she says, you have um, the sweetest face. It's like a perfect kitchen. And I think it's such a funny statement. Like, I never... I don't know why that's what her mind goes to. But she's, she's like, you know, everything matches and everything's where it should be. Which is a really weird sentiment. I don't know. Well, it's also, like, part of the mania. She's clearly, like, drugged, so... Right, but I think even drugged my mind wouldn't be like, someone's face is like a kitchen. (laughs) It's very strange. I think at this point, she kind of mentions what I believe is that she has asthma sometimes. Yeah, no, it definitely is like respiratory issues. Or she has some kind of respiratory issue because she says sometimes it's really hard for her to breathe, which is sad. I think she doesn't have enough money to like get herself treated. No, plus I don't think... There is medicine in this world, but I don't think it's as advanced as one would like in order to treat stuff like that. No, definitely not. But just sad that, you know, she's got, like, a an illness. Yeah, so he's just kind of checking her over. She smells his hair. She says he smells nice. And then they get up to the top of the graystone. Which was smart for him to make that ladder this time around. Yeah, thank God, because he already ruined his hands once. Oh, I forgot about this part. So... When Dennis talking about her asthma, she says she had pneumonia as a baby and she actually died. Mm. And then she came back. And I didn't know if there was some kind of weird parallel between, like, Lonre and Lyra dying and then, like, one bringing the other back. Who knows? Um, and she says if there is a reason, I don't know what that reason is. But I don't think it's anything sinister or weird. It might just be, like, a convenient parallel. Um, so, yeah, they pretty much get up on the greystone and... Kaboth is like, this is the greatest moment of my life. Like, oh, because they're like cause they're cuddling. cuddling up. And I feel bad because Denna's like, you don't think about me. And she gets kind of cross with him. Yeah, she's like, you don't think about me the way I think about you. Which is the first time that she actually even admits she thinks about him in any kind of way at all. She seems like just kind of like flirty. She never actually vocalized any of her feelings. Yeah, so him. finally there's like a moment, even though... You know, she's a feeling the effects of the dinner resin, so in his mind, he's like, too good to be true. She's on drugs, and she doesn't mean it. I do like that he says there are, like, men who will take advantage of women in this situation, and I will never be one of them. Yeah. Like, there's a lot of subtle, noble things that both slips in in the books about, like, treating women and treating people who are less than you, or who are, like, unable to help themselves. He's very gallant about that kind of stuff. Yeah. Which I do really like as a character trait for him. But just sad because obviously we know he's like in love with her and she's like, you don't even like me. And it's like, if you only knew. Oh, I know. He's obsessed with you. But uh, I feel bad. But it's always like you can't quite 
have it. It's always like just about there. He cannot catch a break with her. I think this is the closest that he gets to kind of anything genuine and honest about Dennis' feelings coming from her because after that she's always guards up. Yeah. Which is a bummer. The chapter kind of ends with a little bit of, that's like bittersweet because she's like, whisk me away, sing to me, you're my Prince Gallant. And then he says, I will. But by the time he, by the time he says, I will, she's already fallen asleep. Mm-hmm. So that's how that chapter ends. And I really kind of enjoy this chapter because obviously we kind of have a moment of clarity for the reader where it's like, is this just awkward teens being like, I'm into you. I don't know what's going on. Like there's clearly confirmation. Like. Yeah, they do both like each other. It's just they can't quite get their timing right. I'm still somehow, I don't really know how it connects, but I am somehow convinced that, like, Denna's connected to the Chandrian or something. Like, I feel like she is tasked with maybe, like, spying on Kavoth or something, but also has feelings for him. So I, I kind of think that that's where this confusion on her end comes from. I think she definitely is involved, but unwillingly. That's or either of- that or... um unknowingly like she could be unknowingly i think it's like one of those things where she would never outright portray him but if she was doing things out of ignorance you know what i mean Mm, i could see that i could see that i just i get the impression that it's like there's more than her station in life that's preventing her from being with kavoth oh absolutely and him too it takes two chapter 80 touching iron all right, we're finally down to, like, the action of the Dracus now. This is where it gritty. starts. Kavoth yes. uh, wakes up, and he's, you know, cuddling with Den on top of the gray stone, and it's just filling him with, like, a crackling energy, and he's just stoked. And, like, any young person that's, like, finally able to be close to the person they're wicked into is just, like, knows that, like, excitement feeling. Yeah, it's just, like, a thrill. Yes. He mentions how earlier he wanted the Dracus to just, like, hurry up and get there. And now he, all he wants is for the Dracus to just not ever show up again because oh, yeah. he's having, like, the perfect time. And, of course, that's when the Dracus decides to show up. And he tries to shake her awake, and Den is just out. She's completely, like, comatose. So but he, he, he says it. that it's not the effects of the Den arising because he, like, opens her eyelids and, like, shines the light in them at one point and says that her eyelids are, or her... Her pupils, pupils are reacting are, to the light, yeah. Yeah, they're not, like, dilated or weird. So she's just exhausted, which does make sense because she's been like go, go, go since Madeline Farm and she does have what I think was a concussion. So I think she's just finally That she's sleeping off the drugs. She's yeah. finally metabolized everything. Yeah. Kavoth ends up kind of leaving a piece of twine on the graystone and a couple of items to prevent Denner from falling off. And he's got his bucket and rope out to kind of do what they affectionately refer to as chicken fishing. I love that. (laughs) And so we have the Dracus, you know, making its way on top of the hill, kind of snuffling around and exploding these gouts of flame out of its mouth to the fire as if it's challenging it. Yeah, I love that. Kvothe says it's either a challenge or a greeting, and he's not sure which, but it's coming in, like, very noticeably, uh, like, riled up with, like, shooting out flame and... I think it immediately runs over to the fire, right? Yeah, so it wiki quickly runs up to the fire, huffs again, and, you know, starts advancing onto the bucket because he has it out by the fire. I think it gets the bucket almost immediately. Like, it just, like, swallows it down. And then Kavoth is like, great, I just have to wait, you know, maybe an hour tops. It'll be dead. Very wrong. (laughs) He's very, very wrong in this situation. But he... It's just is kind of like observing the Dracus and it's snuffling around, it's eating wood, and he's hoping that it'll progress through the stages of the Denner resin very, very quickly. Yeah. And it isn't. It's taking longer for things to develop than he would like. He's thinking that it's going to be going to delirium, but it's not. Like he was hoping that it would like whip through the things and basically like spasm out and die very quickly. And it's it's not doing that. So then the Dracus is settling down and laying on the fire like it did the first night they saw it. So he's a little bit confused why it's not feeling the effects. And then he notices that there's a lot of light coming from the town of Trayvon. And he's like, what is going on over there? Remembers that it's the Harvest Festival, so everyone has bonfires out. And they're like lighting up shamble men, which are basically kind of like scarecrows. Yeah, so there's like big 
bursts of bright light every time one of them goes up in flames. And so Kavoth is, like, internally freaking out. He's like, for the love of God, don't turn around. Do not see the city. Oh, I know. And of course, it turns around. It does kind of like a, a little roll, and it whips its head and sees the town and just takes like off. Like, immediately starts sprinting down the hillside. Yeah, so this is when he's like, Denna, get up, get up, get up. Like, we have to go. I have to. And pauses and kind of realizes he has no plan. Like, he's like, what am I going to do against this thing? Like, yeah. I can't do nothing. This is a drugged up <laughs> Dracus on the move, like... Yeah, this thing is flying towards the town. How is he possibly going to do anything? And I really like this because, in a way, it's almost like it breaks the fourth wall a little bit where he's like, what am I going to do? I can't do anything. Like, Yeah, it's actually really clever writing. Obviously, he does decide to run after the Dracus. He leaves Denna behind because she's, like we said, completely out. Um, so he leaves her the water skin but takes the travel sack and he brings the scale from the Dracus that they had earlier and the crossbow bolts and the lodestone. The lodestone. Oh, and the rest of the oil skin sack that had the dinner resin in it. So smart. These are kind of like all the equipment he has. We do see later that he obviously uses sympathy to like make use of the these tools he has, and it's really clever the way he does it. But it's definitely not, I think, what he would hope to have had in this situation. And he is kind of bummed that he has to leave Denna behind. But he's like, I have to kill this dragon. Gotta go. And it's so funny because he's running as fast as he can through the woods, and he has the sympathy lamp that he made for Kelvin, which is the one that has the singular beam of light. So he doesn't have a broad view of where he's running. He falls over like three or four times. And Ass over tea kettle. Yes, yes, yes. yes, yes, yes. <laughs> I love that. Ass over tea kettle. So he falls three times in the woods before he makes it to the road. <laughs> And just, no, that's so realistic. Like, if you're sprinting through the woods, dead of night. Like, oh, absolutely. There's no way you're going to not trip over something or fall. So, yeah, the fact that he mentions he falls down three times is just... It's the realisticness of the writing that I really like. And how often Patrick Rothfuss doesn't follow those fantasy tropes of, like, I was magnificent, I ran as fast as I could, and, like, the wind took me, like... No, I ran and I fell, uh, you know, my travel sack ripped earlier, like, just the how realistic a lot of the stuff is. And, unfortunately, by the time he gets to Trayvon, houses are already on fire, people are screaming, the Dracus is, like, roaring. It's chaos. But, like, way to, like, set the stage for him to, like, show up, like... Oh, yeah, it's really good. Burning building! Crowds of screaming people! Like, what is he gonna do? Like, it's perfect. Yeah. Thankfully, some people did make, like, a bucket line. Um, yeah. So some people kept their heads, but he is definitely here to, like, save the day. And he even says, the stage is set for me, and I knew, like, my part I had to play. Like, it all became very clear to him what he was going to do. Uh, I love those moments, though, where he kind of, like, sees a moment, and he just takes it. And it's just really, as His a reader and a viewer, it's cool. really fast. And obviously he doesn't explain what he's going to do. He just starts doing it. And you are there to, like, observe and watch the decisions he makes and how they come together. And it's really cool. In this part, or, like, during the fire in the fishery, when, when things are moving fast, it's awesome to, like, be in these scenes. So he decides that he is going to pick up a burning shingle. And if we remember way back to the beginning of his time at the university, Alcadal says that all fires are connected and all fires are one and they are the sympathist's tool to control. So this is like really helpful because he's like, I have this one piece of fire, therefore it is connected to all of the fires happening in the town. So he jumps up onto the roofs. At one point he slides because he hops up on a tile roof instead of like a wooden roof. And at this point, he's, like, sliding down the eaves of the roof and almost going to fall, but catches himself, and he kicks off his boots. And it's just straight up, like, hard being, like, roof, like, climb mode. Yeah, so it's definitely, like, muscle memory of, like, oh, yeah, I used to do this all the time. So he's, like, sprinting across the rooftops, and it's really awesome. He gets all the way up to the top of the cistern, which is, like, a huge water tank. He puffs the shingle back to life because it had burnt out a little bit, and he does some sympathy and writes some runes on it and then yeah he does like some signature to like create like a fire eater yeah it's definitely like the quickest he says it's the quickest most slapdash fire heat eater ever created but he takes the shingle 
connects the fire on the shingle to the fires in the town, and then uses a knife to like hold it down under the water in the cistern. The flames didn't go out in the town, but they go way, way down. So people have like a chance to really start fighting these fires, which is great. So he really helps with the town situation. But as he says, his job is only half done. So he now has to take care of the Dracus. So he slides down a drain pipe <laughs> and runs across the town to the front of the church and stops in front of this big tree that's in front of the church, this huge oak tree. And he, this is a bummer because he knows he wanted to keep the rest of the dinner resin, but he takes the remainder of the dinner resin and tosses it into the tree and connects the shingle to the tree and like uses sympathy again to like light the tree up so that there's like this big burst of flame as all the lights catch on fire and the dragon oh, this whole tree running. just goes up it's like a giant bright flash of hot fire and the entire tree for a moment is completely on fire yeah it's like super bright so he wants to catch the dracus's attention with it as the tree's going up in flames he has gotten himself to the roof of the church the dracus sees the flame it belches out this, like, huge burst of blue fire and comes, like, barreling towards the tree. And I love this because it's pretty realistic. Like, there were a ton of leaves on the tree. The tree kind of goes out, but now it's, like, glowing red hot, like, cold, like, charred style. Yeah. But thankfully, it starts to smell the dinner resin that both left in the tree. Yeah. So it's attracted to it and runs over. This is, like, the coolest part of this encounter. So Kavoth, like, connects... Well, he connects, with sympathy, connects the lodestone to the iron wheel on the front of the church and the scale to the Dracus, and then uses, like, magnetism for the scale to pull the lodestone, and therefore it pulls the giant iron wheel towards the Dracus, and it just crushes the Dracus. I just love the whole description of, like, the wheel falls at an unnatural angle and fastening gravity would allow as if God was guiding it down towards the Dracus, and he's like... But it wasn't God. It, it was, was me. me. Yes. And there's something that's so foreshadowing about that I never picked up on the first time. And my first thought immediately was the sword Folly oh. in the Waystonian. Because he has all these heroic and magnificent moments. And I feel like at one point in book three, it's all going to blow up in his face where all these heroic deeds, all these crazy things he's done, all these accomplishments he thinks he's going to be proud of. Ooh. It's somehow all going to blow back up in his face, and that's why there's that sword folly. Oh. I'm probably like wrong, that. but it's just something that I have in the back of my head every time. That's so cool. I think there's a fan theory I read that Kavoth is potentially Telu. Oh. Like, you know how in the myth of Telu, he's born and he has, like, the form of a man? Yeah. Like, I think there's, like, something... It's either a parallel or that someone thought that Kaboth is Telu in the form of a man, and that's why he's, like, so great at all these different things. Hmm. But I'm not really sure. Because I don't know... I don't have enough to see how that fits in. But just the parallels he makes between himself and, like, God or these religious figures sometimes is kind of like, whoa! Yeah. Sorry, I'm like, <laughs> like, it wasn't God, it was me. Like, I'm better than this, so... I think that hubris is definitely going to come back and bite him in the ass at some point. But, I mean, clearly it does because he's hiding away in the Waystone and now his coat. But how it plays out, I'm interested to see. Plus, this whole part was just epic. Like, to take down a full, like, drug-crazed Dracus and save a town. Like, pretty yeah, badass. I love how he uses his environment and his surroundings. And it was really lucky he had that loading stone. Yeah. And the um, the scale. I don't know if there's anything about... Because he gets the loading stone from a tinker. And I know you're not supposed to say no to a tinker or stuff. Like, I wonder if that was somehow connected. Like, he got the loading stone because eventually it was going to be helpful to him. Uh, like, preordained almost. Yeah. Yeah. Very cool. Chapter 81. Pride. This is a very short chapter. And... It definitely is exactly what we were just talking about with Kavoth being very prideful of himself and coming back to bite him because he is like, ugh, like, I feel so smug, I used sympathy, I destroyed the Dracus. He does feel kind of sad about killing the, the Dracus because it's this amazing creature, and I do understand that. And then immediately the no uh, he hears this noise of crumbling, and the church 
just falls out from under beneath him. Like, the whole building crumbles, and he goes down. <laughs> I do think he it's impressive, to- though. He does try and, like, jump and climb onto the tree. Yeah, he as he's, you know, in a building that's falling, launches himself into the oak tree, but, like, grabs a branch, it snaps, and he falls and hits his head. Yeah. And it ends in darkness. Chapter 82, Ash and Elm. So we have Kavoth waking up at a room in an inn and just kind of dazed, confused, all bandaged up, has no idea what time it is, what day it is, where he is. And he's, he's kind of like feeling out his body because he's covered in bandages, but he's not sure like what hurts and what doesn't hurt and, you know, maybe what happened to him. Yeah, and I, I love this part because he's kind of like assessing his body damage, moving his head and it's like throbbing, he's moving his body. And he has, like, this internal dialogue where he's saying he has, like, deep tissue trauma to the medial polony on the right leg, uh, oblique strain to cards between the ribs, and he's just like, ugh, I don't know. Those aren't real <laughs> injuries, though. We looked them up. Yeah, I was going to say, um, objectively speaking, as a, uh x-ray technologist and CT technologist, I've never heard of the polony in the leg if anyone who's listening has any familiarity, I've tried Googling things, but I've not seen anything. I think it's... I don't know if he's misremembering because he's dazed, or if it's just, like, mumbo-jumbo jargon that Patrick Rothfuss assumed no one would know what it means anyway. Yeah. So. Just curious. Anyone who's listening wants to throw in two cents on that, if they have any thoughts on it, we'd love to hear from you. Um, so, yeah, he's just kind of clearly in bed, just... In a world of hurt and just <laughs> completely dazed and confused. And so classic of both, it's like all banged up. You should be in bed. Does the exact opposite. Sits and gets up. Oh, yeah. Gets up immediately. Someone, the a girl comes in, right? Yes. And this part's actually very interesting. Yeah. The interactions he has with the townspeople in the next chapter or so are very interesting. Um, this first one, he says this young girl comes in and he goes, oh, it's She's probably, like, a Nelly or a Nell, and she, you know, works in an inn and always is, like, slightly afraid of of people or whatever. Like, he gives her a little profile, and he gets a little bit of information from her saying that no one was actually killed, which is good. She said the worst injury is that somebody's arm got broken, um, and some people burned, not burned, some people got burned or breathed in too much smoke, but other than that, it's not too bad. He asks about Denna. No one has seen her. He decides to, at that point, just go downstairs. Yeah. It's like, whatever. I'm, I have to find Denna. I need information. Not really bothered by his injuries, as per Kvothe, uh usually does. So he goes downstairs. Interestingly enough, the barman, who he had that encounter with a couple days ago, calls the girl Nellie. So I don't know if this is one of Kvothe's weird naming things, where he accidentally knows the name of stuff, but he guessed her name correctly, which is kind of funky. I think it is, and I think it's kind of when Master Elenin says, you know, your subconscious mind comes forward. Oh, it's because his head is, like, woozy? Yeah, he had a concussion. Ah. And I think, more importantly, since he isn't quite in the right mind, he's more apt to naming. I bet you're right. I bet that's exactly what it is. Because a few mm-hmm. times he does name things, he's, like, not thinking about the name of things. No. It's just kind of, like, it just a reaction out. thing. Yeah. It's very, um... It's, like, how he describes in uh, Wise Man's Fear, where it's, like, if you were to catch a stone, you're not going to calculate it or think about it. You're just going to react and do it. Yep. Yeah. It's very much, like, feeling. Mm. Ah, so cool. Thankfully, he does have all his travel sack stuff with him, except for his boots, which he goes and gets later. But, yeah, he goes downstairs and is talking to the barman, who's just, like... This guy sucks. He's just kind of a dumbass. Sucks he's like, suck. oh, does your face hurt? It's killing me. Like, ha-ha, dude, you're an adult man making fun of an injured 15-year-old? What's Who your problem? saved your town. <laughs> yeah, like, why are you like this? Kvothe asks about Denna again, and the guy's like, she hasn't come back. She was bad luck, so, like, good riddance. I don't want her here. And Kavoth kind of ignores that and says, like, all right, I need bread, fruit, and whatever meat you have, and also I'll take a bottle of strawberry wine. He's clearly looking for Denna. 
And the guy, the barman's like, oh, you think you're going somewhere? You ain't going nowhere. (laughs) Yeah, like, the constable wants to talk to you. And Kvothe gets, like, sassy and angry. And he's like, give me, I'm kindly asking you for things. Um, And he takes out his purse and he's like, please. And the guy's like... Ugh, like, I'm not gonna let you leave. Yeah. And well, I just love this stupid insult, because I've never heard it anywhere other than this book. He's like, listen here, you little swagger cock. <laughs> yeah, and... and <laughs> so funny. It makes sense. Like, he's very swaggery and cocky, but... <laughs> the guy's like, you need to respect me. Which, why? You insulted me to my face. Yeah. So Kavoth throws an iron drab at him, and the guy's like, what's this for? And Kavoth's like, it's for your quick service. This is your tip. Then he uses some sympathy and starts making the, like, varnish around the drab bubble and char. He's using um, his own body heat to do this because he says his arm gets cold. But it looks like sorcery and magic, so the guy freaks out and is like, Oh, alright, I'll get you what you need. As you ordered it. Well, Kovoth also threatens him. He's like, give me this or I'll burn this place down around your ears and dance among the ashes and your charred sticky bones. Once again, taking it to, like, way too far. It's like when he was getting the horse from that guy. He's like, I'll kill you and eat you in front of your neighbors. Like, calm <laughs> down, Kvothe. Calm down. <laughs> so the there's a little jump in time, and he ends up going back to the Greystone Hill. There is nothing there. He found his possessions where he left them, so his blankets, the water skin, uh, but no Denna. And he's like, maybe she just left, you know, for a call of nature. I'll wait. And he waits and waits and waits. And it's clearly not that. And then he starts, like, whispering and then calling out and then eventually shouting for her. It's like, dude, she's clearly not here. Yeah, she's gone. So he's like, fine. And then goes above and beyond and then, like, leaves a note. Like, she's ever going to go back up there. Yeah, I don't know why he did that. He says this thing where he's like, did she think I abandoned her? So he's, like, blaming himself for the situation, even though clearly Denna just left. Yeah. Like, it's not anyone's fault. So, yeah, he leaves a note, and he's, like, leaves and goes back to Trayvon, but he's like, ugh, I thought mean things, and I was in a bad mood all day about it. So he gets back to Trayvon just as the sun is setting. He gets up to the roof of the inn to collect his boots that he kicked off the night before, which is miraculous that they are still there, considering he's always losing his shoes and his shirts and destroying all his clothes all the time. But he can kind of look out at the town from this vantage point. So he sees that the front half of the church collapses, and about a third of the town had been damaged by fire. But he he thinks that because more of the town was burned than had been yesterday, like when he first saw it, he's like, oh, I guess like my heat eater must not have worked. The fire must have gone out of control. And then he goes over to the cistern where his heat eater situation had been set up and realizes that uh, there's not enough water in it anymore. People had been using the water to put the fires out, and when the water line dipped below where the shingle was in the cistern wall, it stopped preventing the fires from burning. So That's smart. So when I had read that, I thought it meant that the water was boiled off in an attempt to contain, like, basically that shingle tile submerged in water. Oh, like it collected so much heat that the water boiled off? Yeah, and then it went below the line. But I didn't even think about the townsfolk using the water as well to combat the fire. So it's probably in combination of those two things. I think it's both. He does like specifically say they had set up a line to the cistern. And I think that's how he knew where the cistern was. So I know that they're taking water out of it when they're doing their like fire brigade line. Right, right. Um, but yeah, it could also be the fact that it collected so much heat that the water boiled off. But either way, the water level went so low that the shingle wasn't in the water anymore. So it wasn't effectively Helping. working as a heat eater anymore. I think at first he was like, oh, I didn't make a good enough heat eater. But once he realizes what happens, he's like, oh, well, things could have been a lot worse if I wasn't able to do that. Yeah. So he goes back down to the bar where he's been staying, and the mayor and constable are there this time. So they immediately, like, grab Kvothe and bring him to a back room. And they're trying to get some questions out of him. And Kvothe plays it very cool. He doesn't really respond that much, and he doesn't offer too many answers. So he's he plays pretty coy and lets them 
answer their own questions in a way that he gets information he wants without having to give them any information about himself. Yeah, because they're, like, nervously rambling, and it's kind of cool because there's this whole part where they can tell Kavoth isn't intimidated by their authority whatsoever, and Mm -hmm. they realize that, so it makes him even more nervous. Yeah, it's very cool. They think he's some kind of, like, magical religious figure or something because there was rumors that people saw someone up on the church roof and then the iron wheel crushed the Dracus. Yeah, and it's like they saw him standing on the roof with like both hands like out open as if in prayer. Which is just him holding the load and stone in the scale. Yeah, but- and then there's a whole interaction with the bartender. Some people heard and saw that. So they're putting one and two together of like... They think he's some kind of like religious wizard. So they don't want to really anger him. But they also don't really want him in their town too much longer. <laughs> And so, as the constable and the mayor are kind of filling Kavoth in on what happened, and everyone's, for the most part, okay, the first thing Kavoth actually asks is, what did you do with the monster? Ugh. Or, or demon, I'm sorry. They're all convinced it was a demon. And no matter how much persuasion from Kavoth, he knows that they're not going to see it as anything else. There's no point in him trying to persuade. They also mention that they believe that the Dracus was responsible for Madeline Farm. And he's yeah. like, yeah, I'm not even going to bother like, what would be the point of me arguing with these people? And as if Telu's own iron wheel crushed it, that was, like, all the final proof they needed. It breathed fire, iron killed it, like... Yep. Yeah, Ugh. but it's such a bummer, because they're like, oh, we did exactly what you're supposed to do. Bury and burn it. And he's like, shit. <laughs> yeah, because it was, like, worth a king's ransom. Not only that, but, like, he could have brought the body back to university to be studied. Yeah, this... Body had so much use, like, the iron and the scales was worth a lot. Like, people would have paid so much. And, like, the people in the town could have obviously used that money to rebuild if they knew what it was worth. And they were like, we did the proper thing and buried it all and destroyed it in the process. Friggin' ignoramuses. And I just love, like, Cabot's inner dialogue of just like, ah! and he's, like, like wanting no! to curse him in, like, eight languages and just make you idiots. <laughs> I know. And then he, he, I think at one point he's like, do you think you'd... They would, like, be weirded out if I went and tried to, like, dig up the body. He's like, it's, they're going to catch me. It's not going to be worth it. So, goodbye, Dracus, and all the money that that body promised. Yes. And the dinner resin. Like, he really doesn't have much left worth from this adventure, which is a bummer, because yesterday it seemed like he was going to be living large with all the money he was going to bring back. Right. In his mind, he's like, what's done is done. So, his next question for the constable and the mayor is, um... Uh, did any of you see where the girl who survived in Modern Farm went? Has anyone seen her today? And they were like, what? No, we haven't seen her. She connected somehow. Oh, yeah. And he's like, no, you idiots. Don't be ridiculous. Definitely not. Because he doesn't want to implicate Donna. But then because they start to think about how, like, the Dracus and Madeline Farm are connected, he's like, oh, if I'm going to, you know, finish up my work here. I need to know what they dug up. I need to, yeah, so tell everyone in the town that I'll be here for one more day and send anyone my way who may have seen what the Matherwins dug up because after that, like, my work here will be done and your town will be safe, essentially. So he, he makes it sound very mysterious. He's still just using this all to collect information for himself. But the mayor and the constable are like, oh, yes, definitely. We will do that for sure. And I just love that he, like, smoothly gets up, no flinching or, like, stumbling even though he's in a ton of pain like his cloak billowing behind him as he makes a grand exit yes it's so cool it's very dramatic yes and when the scene is set i know how to make an exit just like oh he's so dramatic but i love it in times like this so cool so cool (laughs) where it's like he's a child he didn't do what these people think that they thought he did but they're, like, in awe of him, and he's like, all right, I gotta use this to my advantage. Cloak whip. <laughs> <laughs> Cloak whip. <laughs> Exit. Stage left. Like, like, yeah, he really milks it. <laughs> and so the next day, he spends kind of recuperating in a soft bed, eating food, and just kind of getting back together. And a couple of people stop by to see Kavot, saying, like, they dug something up at Matherwin Farms. He's like, yeah, I know. What was it? I need to it? know what it is. And they're like, it was something. They dug something up. I was like, no shit. Yeah, so none of those people are helpful until this little girl comes in. Yep, and it's like the very faintest of knocks. And he's like, come in. And it's this little girl. She is... Like 12 or 13? Yeah, so... Which is funny, because if you think about it, Kvothe is only 15. Yeah. But he's, you know, clearly the big man in this situation. Like, 
seems like an adult compared to her. So this girl, Verania Greyflock, comes in. And once again, Kavoth does some naming shit where he's like, oh, that's a beautiful name. It's this type of flower, but I bet no one calls you Verania. Do they call you Nina? And, and the girl's like, oh yeah, that's what my grandma calls me. So once again, kind of subconsciously naming. Um, Either that or it's kind of like nicknames. Yeah, but it's also like he he knows that like it'll put her at ease. Yeah, it definitely disarms her. It's it's like if you someone uses your formal name, like your full three names because you're in trouble versus like a nickname. Yeah. So it definitely helps her calm down a little bit. And she's not scared of Kavoth, she's scared of what she saw because she saw what the Matherwinds dug up and now everyone is dead at that farm and the Dracus came so she's like dead convinced that like demons are coming for her. You're next. I know this poor girl. <laughs> so this boy Jimmy who was Madeline's youngest son showed her a big fancy pot she says about this high. So it's um, about three feet tall which is very large. Oh yeah it's like ornate. It's large. I don't really know the significance of it being a pot. I don't know if it's an urn or if it's just something symbolic. Like, I'm, I'm not sure why the artifact itself was a pot. But it has lots of pictures and writings of the Shandrian on it. And their signs. And their signs. So the pictures are um, a woman holding a broken sword. So Sam and I debated this yesterday because I thought the broken sword was the significance of the rotting metal, like the rusty metal. Mm. And I think you thought it was something to do with Lyra. Yeah, kind of. I mean, we don't know any women Chandrian yet. Mm. So I'm not sure who this is. Um, there's a man next to a dead tree. So I think that's like the rotted wood. Yeah. And then another man with a dog biting his leg. So I have no idea what that's about. I don't know if animals like turn, turn crazy because of the Chandrian. I don't know. What it sounds like is the people on it are the Shandrian themselves yes. with their signs. It's not like people experiencing the Shandrian. So there's something to do with dogs. Because then they both asked her, was there a man with a white face and black eyes? Yep. Yeah. On the vase. So that's Cinder. Yes. She also mentions that there was. Haliax was on there because there's someone with no face, just a hood. Yeah. So that's Haliax. And there's, this one's kind of weird. She said there was a mirror by his feet and a bunch of moons over him. So I don't know if that signifies something to do with, like, Eax stealing the moon in the creation wars. I don't know if it has something to do with his ability to, like, transport them to different realms. Mm, could be both. Could be both. Just because, like, the moon I know is really important in, like, the human realm and the fey realm and it sounds like the shandrian can travel between both and i don't know if the mirror is meant to signify like a portal between the two but that's how he's portrayed and then there's a woman with some of her clothes off so there's two women on this we don't know anything about women shandrian i thought maybe it was something to do with Valurian, who comes up in the next book because she's not wearing clothes mm. but i don't know anything about it not too sure so there's a bunch of foreign writing all over it too but she doesn't know Obviously what the language is. What it was, and she can't replicate it. And she is really scared at this point. She starts kind of crying because she's like, you know, I only saw it for like a half a moment, but everyone else who saw it is dead. Like, are things going to come for me? Kavoth comforts her, but realizes that like her face looks really hollow and her eyes are like very kind of like dead looking like she's been awake scared for like many days at this point. Like she is not coping well with the situation. Well, to be fair from her perspective, saw this vase recognizes that it's, like, the Shandrian. Anyone who knew about the vase from this wedding got murdered and the farm got burned to the ground. She doesn't know it's the Shandrian. She just thinks it's people on it. Oh. And then the next day, or days later, um, a demon shows up in town. Yeah, I can't blame her for being scared. Like, she's 13 and she comes from a town that still follows, like... All the superstitions. All these superstitious traditions, so... She's really scared. So Kavoth gives her... It's just a piece of a lamp he was working on in the fishery, but here, he's like, here, this is a charm I got from Valorian, far away from the Stormwall Mountains. And he gives it to her. He's like, you know, she's going to lose it, and then she'll be really scared. So he does something that's really clever and, like... Attunes it to attunes her. Attunes it to her, but all he does is, like, put it in her hand and put his hand on hers and then just quotes the first ten lines of the play Ve Valora Sartane. Which is, like, spoken in Temek? Yeah, yeah. He's like, it doesn't, like, the lines don't matter at all, but just Temek sounds so impressive that it, like, it seemed great. Once again, Kvothe really falling back on his Edimaru roots 
for his advantage because he knows all these like performances like so he's a good actor but he also knows all these lines and words and can recite things that end up coming in handy and it's just lucky that a lot of people don't know them yes like these would be useless if if he started citing things that people knew but it really works to his advantage many times and, and this time the girl is like completely relieved he's like no matter what even if you lose this charm you'll be safe forever like don't worry about it and so she leaves and the last little bit of this chapter is him kind of reflecting on what he'd done so he's like you know in the last month i pulled fail out of a fire i called lightning down on these assassins i defeated the dracus but none of those things really made me feel like a hero until this very moment and he's like if you're looking for a beginning look here which is crazy because I didn't even really remember this scene after reading it the first time. Like, obviously, on the reread, I was like, oh, yeah, I remember that happening. But it didn't really stand out that much. But, yeah, he feels so, like, helpful when he can put this one girl's mind at ease. So I don't know if that's going to end up coming back later in the books or not. Have to wait and see. I mean, I know she comes back, but... Chapter 83, Return. So we have Kavuth kind of getting himself organized at this inn in the common room, and everyone sees him pretty much back to normal. And it had only been a day or so. Like, yeah, there was some minor bruising, but he like his head bandages were off. He's like looking like he healed and recovered very quickly. So it just adds to his like mystique. Is he actually healed, or is he just like trying to play it cool? I think is it's he... a combination of two. It's not like he heals faster than the average person, right? I don't know. He does seem to bounce back a little faster than some. Do you think that's because he's potentially part fey? I think it has something to play into it. Okay. I wasn't sure. But yeah, everyone's kind of amazed. He has an interaction with the barman about, like, paying for yeah, his stay. And he couldn't... He could absolutely not, like, charge him, like... Oh, yeah, there's this back and forth of, like, oh, I insist. Oh, no, no. Oh, please let me. Oh, no. I couldn't possibly. Yeah, like, yeah, yeah. You know, obviously the innkeeper... I think the innkeeper was told that he wasn't supposed to charge him because he's kind of grumpy about this situation. Kavoth manages to get another a bottle of strawberry wine as his payment for saving the town. You know, obviously he's still hoping to find Denna using this wine and, like, have something good for her. So he decides to make his way down to Evestown Docks, which is where the tinker was eventually going. Um, so he's going to take a boat back to uh, the university. And on the boat, he asks the dock workers if they'd seen a young woman come by. They confirm that it sounds like they seen have seen someone who matches Dennis' description. So he's like, that's good. But, like, why didn't she come to Trayvon? Like, why didn't she come looking for me? Like, I'd left all my travel sack stuff with her or, like, my blankets and water skin. Yeah, but she's a rolling stone and he's kind of dumb where she knows she wasn't wanted there. So she's not going to go back. No, it's true. It's just it, a normal person, I think, would be like, oh, I've woken up, the person I have been traveling with is not here. I'll wait around a little bit and see what's going on. Yeah, she just kind of takes and she off. just dips. So, like, every time she just leaves. And he also is wondering if she remembered anything they talked about, like, emotionally between the two of them. It's like, maybe she just forgot. Yeah. Which is sad. I do feel bad for him. Always pining. You know. <laughs> He's just got to not be so obsessed with her all the time. Anyways, so he gets back to Imray a few hours after dawn, so it takes him the whole evening, I guess. So it definitely, he got there much faster by horseback the first time yeah. than it did to get back. He goes to Debbie's um, and gives her the Loden Stone and one talent, and his short-term loan from his adventure is completely wiped out, which is awesome. He really lucked out with that, though, for a 20-talent loan. Oh my god. <laughs> I mean, originally he had no way to pay it back. I think it hurts a little bit because it's like he could have had probably like 500 talents between the load and stone and the scales and the dinner resin and the dracus. Like he could have just been super rich, assuming people didn't think he stole all this stuff. Mm -hmm. So to end up at net zero is a bit of a bummer. Bit of a bummer, but... But also, all things considered, he could have been... I feel like it's like he survived. Like... Yeah, he definitely could have screwed himself over. And then he has to kind of... He just does a quick little summary of, like, putting his life back together. So he was actually gone for four days, which is a decent amount of time if mm -hmm. you don't tell anyone where you're going. So he missed an appointment with Kathrepe, two meetings with Benet, and lunch with Fela. Ankers hadn't had their musician. And even Ari reproaches him for not coming to see her, which I think is really cute. I like this, too, because it's, like, as much as 
the Demaru in him is always like continue traveling. Yeah. Like he clearly has like built a life here, and like he's accountable to people, and people care about him. Yeah, and it's also kind of nice because like clearly the people he lists here are the people he counts in his like inner circle. So it's Devi, Threpe, Manet, Fela, Anker, Ori, Kilvan, Oxidel, and Arwill, and then Will and Sim. So like he has like a good group of people who have his back. Yeah, and he does try to make it right with all of them. He apologizes to Kilvan, Oxidel, and Arwill because he missed classes and work with them. And then he apologizes to Wilson, and they are the only two who get the full explanation yeah. of what happened. Um, and they were actually really worried because they had heard those rumors of a student attacked in an alley, and then they didn't see Kabul for four days. Yeah. So they were very concerned. I'm that. sure Ambrose thought he, like, scared them off for good. Mm-hmm. He does not tell them that he wrote out because he was interested in the Shandrian, but he shows them the scale and everything, and he said they were, like, you know, very amazed... And be a good audience, but, you know, next time if you run off, there'll be hell to pay. Leave a friggin' note, dude. Yeah, like, it would take four seconds. I guess he couldn't go back to his room. No. Because he... It was just such, like, a mad dash of events, like, one after the other between, like, the attack with, like, the guys and then, like, him calling down lightning. So at that point, he couldn't go back to his rooms. Yeah. Um, And, of course, he looks for Denna, but cannot find her. And that's the end of the episode. Once again, he can never find Denna. I think that's a very important and, like, telling trait of their relationship. Like, she is always the one to find him, even though he spends all his time looking. Yeah. So I just think that there's something preventing him from finding her. I don't know what it is, but it drives me crazy because I really want to know, like, what kind of scenario she has with her patron and, like, what she's doing in her free time. Yeah. I don't know. She's just a mysterious character, and I feel frustrated about how little we know about her. Definitely an enigma. Yeah, like, they spent the past four days together, essentially, and we still know almost nothing more about her. She has asthma. Oh, thanks. (laughs) (laughs) Good, now we know that. (laughs) Um, No, but these are definitely... What we've just covered in coming up are definitely the, uh, like, climax of the story. My favorite chapters, we get to hear... The namesake of the book coming up in yeah. the next episode. I always look at this as like the beginning of the climax, like his whole showdown with the Dracus. And like I said in a different episode, there's multiple plot lines in this book, and I think that was the climax of like his quest for the Shandrian and also his relationship with Denna in the first book. Yeah. There's definitely climax coming up with like his interactions with Ambrose, Ambrose and like his quest for the name of the wind. And his academic career. Yeah, there's a lot coming down to the wire, and like, there's a lot at stake for Kabuth right now, and he doesn't quite know it yet. Um, but I think we have just two episodes left for The Name of the Wind, so we hope to see you all next time. And until then, happy reading. Thanks for listening. If you like what you hear, check out our website, fantasticbookspod.com. Or follow us on Instagram or Facebook at Fantastic Books Pod. Don't forget to follow, rate, and leave a review. Thanks. Thanks.